only independent podcasts and so on. They are keeping our democracy and freedom, which really is under threat. They are keeping it alive. So please give them any financial help you can. It's a good investment, not immediately, but in the long term. It's not that you get something for it, but in the spiritual sense, the air intellectual that you are breathing will be much better. So please give the money to Novara Media and you will sleep better. In the early 19th century, the extraordinarily named soldier, Gregor McGregor, appeared in London, offering an enticing investment opportunity. The new state of Poyas, liberated, he said, in the wave of Bolivarian revolutions that were sweeping South America, was beautiful and ripe for investment. Buoyed by enthusiasm for the revolutions, impressed by McGregor's audience with King George IV, and perhaps intoxicated by the newly coherent global capital markets, English investors poured money into the project. Some showed even more dedication, and 250 colonists set sail across the Atlantic for the promised shores. There was only one problem. The country didn't exist. When the colonists landed, instead of the thriving cities they were promised, they found a mere handful of buildings, and rather more than a handful of mosquitoes. Within a couple of months, half were dead. This mangling of scam, speculation, frenzy and illusion contains the seeds of much of the contemporary world. And in recent years, these same tactics of illusion and fantasy have played a major role in the construction of cities. Now, instead of elaborate tales, there are CGI renders and glossy PDFs. Cities in general are composed as much of these spectral futures as they are of bricks, as much of a series of wagers on the possibility of future accumulation, as they are mega-machines functioning right now. And new cities, or at least new pitch decks, are springing up worldwide. Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, launched a plan for a giant new city in the shape of a line called, with visionary insight, the line. Indonesia has an entirely new capital city called Nusantara, and China has undergone a massive overgrowth of so-called ghost cities. What links these moments? Perhaps it's capital's need for new spaces for further accumulation, free ports, special economic zones, and gated communities. These are spaces where it can set its own laws, taxes, and regulations. In some ways, they're the inverse of the utopian aspirations of commune movements, spaces where capital can secure its long dreamed of autonomy. I'm Richard Thames, and on this episode of Navarra FM, I wanted to find out more about these new mega-projects. So I spoke to Quinn Slobodian, perhaps the world's foremost historian of neoliberalism. In his new book, Crack Up Capitalism, he narrates the history of these capitalist zones of exception and their paradoxical centrality to our globalised world. Professor Slobodian, welcome to Navarra FM. Happy to be here. 
In your book, you note that there are 82 different varieties of zone. We'll get into exactly what we mean by a zone uh, presently. But I wanted to note, I think, something that you possibly had in a recent article, exactly forgetting where it came from, which is noting that the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan are currently considering changing some of the former air bases that were occupied by the American military into special economic zones inside Afghanistan. Um, these are presumably zones that were themselves during the occupation and certainly during the early stages of the war on terror used to govern Afghanistan and indeed govern that whole area of the world uh, through obscure legal instruments. They functioned as black sites. And I wanted to kind of focus on this image of these black sites from the war on terror being repurposed to become special economic zones um, now. And what you think this image tells us of this kind of transformation and this production of zones, what does it tell us about the involutions or chaoticness of contemporary capitalism? Yeah, I think it's actually a really good thing to start with because it calls attention to something that the anthropologist James Ferguson, who I found very helpful, remarked on years ago, which is that our idea of globalization is meaning that capital flows across the world is actually really misleading. That actually, as he put it, capital hops. And it hops from basically very small spaces to small spaces, often to these sort of enclaves, which are legally defined as spaces of a particular kind of activity. In his examples, often of sites of, of mineral extraction or manufacturing, but also as sort of forward operating bases in the example you describe of um, American military power. And we think of those probably mostly in political terms, as probably we should, or geopolitical terms, but they're also economic um, entities, right? I mean, the, the, um, the United States invasion of Iraq was very much seen as a kind of a contractor's war. Um, over half of the people who were there sort of conducting the war were not um, members of the military. They were people who were either mercenaries or people doing things like making the hamburgers and giving the haircuts and washing the bedclothes and so on. So it actually follows completely rationally and logically that the Taliban would say, well, where are the sites of infrastructure? Where are the sites of capital investment? Where is the place where like the empire actually left kind of an economic trace and say, well, let's start from there. So it's, it's sort of superficially jarring because we think, wow, that's like a category error to take something that was a military space and make it into an economic space. But the two are, are completely joined at the hip. And it helps us actually to see how close those two um, enterprises are, I think. Despite that connection, I think that perhaps you'd agree that the repurposing of those spaces by the Taliban is an exceptional and indeed strange kind of zone. Although it nevertheless, in some ways, as you're pointing out, fits within the sort of the overriding logic of the system. Is there something we can say more generally about the kinds of functions that zones, these separate demarcated areas of the world, play for capital? Or is the question mm -hmm. too general? Are there too many different varieties of functions? No, I think it's possible. I mean, I think that if you use a kind of a, a, a beginning definition to say, well, these are spaces of some kind of legal exception. So they have a different set of rules compared to the territories around them. Then it's possible to say, well, what are zones interesting for as kind of lenses? Well, they're interesting because they 
make us realize that this big story that we usually tell about the 20th century and the 21st century, which is the kind of the passage from a world of empires to a world of nations, actually has a, a sequel. And the creation of zones, whether they are sites of manufacturing, intensive financial service provision, whether in fact they're refugee camps or military bases, just opens up a kind of a whole different geography to the one I think we're used to when we just look at a map in terms of um, nation states swathed in a particular color, and then next door you have a different color. In fact, when you when you think about zones as um, sort of global perforations of nation states, then the not just the dirty business, but also like the the very you know clean and high end business of capitalism kind of comes into focus in a different way. So I think about the zones kind of like the glasses and they live, you know, like you put on the sunglasses and suddenly like the real message suddenly becomes clear. It allows us to see the kind of infrastructures and geographies of um, political economy in ways that don't line up very well with nation state borders. And I think that's very helpful just empirically on the first cut to have a better um, optic on how the world actually operates. I haven't seen uh, They Live. You've seen you've seen reference to it all the time. If you've ever read Six Pages of Slavoj Zizek, you've probably heard him reference it. It stars the professional wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper, um, who comes into um, possession of these glasses, which allow him to kind of do real-time like ideology critique by just putting them on. It is the origin of the, um, the shepherd fairy kind of obey um, term, which, which when he looks around, he sees is actually what every billboard is mm. telling him to do and so on. Thanks, Zizek. Yeah. Uh, great, great reading. Yeah. <laughs> really, uh, really in-depth. Yes, um, exactly. It takes a lot to get there. <laughs> I want to kind of situate this interview in terms of, or focus in this interview on cities and the construction of new spaces mm -hmm. of accumulation on new cities as a whole. And I wanted to kind of proffer a, maybe a very basic idea, which is that capitalism started sometime in the 1970s by privatizing quite small things, right? And then it privatized larger things and larger things and larger things. And we got these zones, these kind of special areas of countries, sometimes pretty small zones like free ports in, say, Geneva, but then also quite large zones like whole areas of southeastern China as well. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we've kind of reached the scale of the city in that escalation. That's obviously a very simplistic story. And I wonder if you could sort of complicate some of that for us to say that instead of maybe that privatization simply increasing in a linear fashion, something else is going on. How do you see the dynamics of privatization connected to the project of constructing whole cities? Sure. Yeah, I think that uh, maybe it's just because I'm a historian, but I would go like several centuries earlier than that. <laughs> um, I just did an interesting conversation with Philip Stern, who's just written a book called Empire Incorporated, about how private corporations um, built the British Empire. And I think there's a lot more connection than is maybe super superficially visible, which is to say that the whole project of overseas expansion, the creation of of um, plantation economies, the creation of merchant empires uh, across Africa, South Asia, the Americas, was conducted by you know people doing what what was quite literally at the time called creating joint stock corporations, very much the predecessor of today's multinational corporation, but also by doing so in very zone like ways. So 
setting down small footholds in places like Singapore or Hong Kong Island and fashioning these places in such a way that they're most attractive to traders, most attractive to investors, have the sort of lightest touch in terms of um, taking money from the people who are doing business there. And the process of kind of the formalization of empire, like the, the transformation of a place like India, for example, from being governed by a company to being part of the formal empire, and then eventually the process of self-determination and decolonization has like put a couple of steps between us and that earlier era of merchant empires and just kind of private, um, private models of ordering and, and government. But the zones, I think, rather than kind of a radically novel form of um, organizing politics are kind of harking back. They're kind of forming a loop back to those earlier eras where you can have a space which escapes forms of democratic accountability or democratic oversight by concentrating power in the hands of like someone who is directly appointed and who doesn't have the same kind of um, legal accountability to local authorities. So this is the story I really tell in my book is how these kind of um, remnants of what seems like a superseded earlier era, places like Hong Kong, still a crown colony in the 1970s, places like the city of London, about which you know people like Nicholas Shaxon and Oliver Bulow have written so well, retains these sort of peculiar feudal qualities, right? In London, the city of London per se, the elections um, give votes to corporations um, equivalent to the votes of residents. They have a kind of autonomy from the surrounding country that they retained from like, you know, the 11th century onward. Hong Kong also just looked like this kind of freakish, like remaining outpost of a bygone era of empires in the 1970s. What was so interesting to me about the neoliberal and libertarian intellectuals at that time is they looked at those places and said, huh, this looks like a relic of the past, but what if we could kind of retrofit it and make it a kind of engine of the future? How do you make this kind of old fashioned thing look like something that is the destiny actually, rather than the superseded legacy of the past? So the privatization that you refer to is, has gone about, has been done by sort of carving out these quasi-extraterritorial patches of land and sort of making them a little bit more like the concessions or the, the crown colonies of the treaty ports of the past. The challenge has always been one of packaging, you know, how do you make this old fashioned thing seem like something other than a return of empire? And in China, that was really hard because the very places that had been created as treaty ports and concessions in the century of humiliation for China are now the places that are becoming special economic zones in the 1980s and 90s welcoming once again back in foreign investors, re-commodifying land, re-commodifying labor. And a lot of the more hardliners inside the Chinese Communist Party were like, hold on a second, why are we doing this again? Like we had a revolution to not give up sovereignty, to not give up patches of territory. And the kind of genius, uh, strategic genius of Deng Xiaoping was to be able to say, yes, we're using basically their tactics, but the difference is now the power is in our hands. 
So that kind of like judo move worked extremely well in the Chinese case. And much of what I describe in the book is other people often in, in you know, Western countries sort of looking admiringly at that judo move and saying, can we do that here too? And that's, you know, this is the UK is the, is the, is grand zero for that because from the late seventies, from the first Thatcher budget onward, really the only idea that the conservatives had had uh, was to sort of re-import the crown colony model back onto British territory and create what they hoped would be kind of miniature Hong Kongs in this chain of enterprise zones and free ports, which now continue to constitute like the kind of the heart of what Tories see as their kind of leveling up or reindustrialization strategy. There's a um, metaphor that is often kind of problematically used, but uh, called Foucault's boomerang, mm-hmm. which you'll be familiar with. The idea that techniques that are developed in the in the colonies are then returned back to the um, the home country. Um, I feel like this is maybe some other level of boomeranging. There's some sort of uh, further development here uh, on top of that. Mm-hmm. I want to think about the kind of distribution, particularly not just of economic zones, but of these whole new planned cities, Yeah, uh, which are, I will read out from a recent list that I found, it was from an article in 2020. There are 10 new planned cities in Indonesia, nine in Kuwait, nine in Uganda, 11 in Tanzania, 20 in Morocco, several in Malaysia, and so on and so on and so on. Those are not the ones we're going to be focusing on. We're going to be focusing on Neom in Saudi Arabia, which is this sort of giga project. uh, probably the world's maybe largest engineering project. I, I oh, for seems. sure. Without question, yeah. There, There is a particular literal sort of um, line around the world that is mostly around the tropics, that, mm. where most of these cities are being um, planned. Those are, of course, states that were overwhelmingly colonized as well. Do you see that reconstruction of these special economic zones as playing a particular role in that process of decolonization? Or is this these countries... Also, many of which have connections to China, because simply China is a massive exporter on the global economy. Do you see there's a process of learning from China, or do you see it in the tendency of decolonization? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's a couple of lineages, right, which I think are distinct. So one lineage I would put in the kind of modernist city building um, tradition which would extend from like Corbusier's vision of a contemporary city in the 1920s through uh, the creation of Brasilia by Oscar Niedermeyer, the modernist architect, as a totally planned city, uh, you know, in the in, uh, you know, distant from the sites of settlement, Chandigarh in the Punjab, designed by Corbusier as well. So the modernist city, the idea of sort of a blank slate creation of um, of a new kind of metropolis from whole cloth is, you know, in a way, a kind of legacy of high modernism and the sort of collectivist dreams of the early 20th century. The Magnitogorsk in the Soviet Union is another example of this. Um, So that idea, you know, it lives on, obviously. You know, Indonesia is currently constructing a brand new capital, as you mentioned, Myanmar did this a few years ago, created a sort of a bespoke new administrative center. Tanzania, after independence, did this as well, Abuja in Nigeria. So that is uh, is sort of not, for me, part of the story of the private city or the libertarian city, right? In a way, it's the opposite. It's an attempt to create 
um, a kind of crown jewel of public governance, um, whether it was New Delhi in the 1920s as a crown jewel of British colonial public rule or these later um, eras. Those are kind of like temples of the idea of national self-determination often. And whether or not they were successful, I think they were trying to be expressions of like the authority of popular sovereignty and and like the power of the nation. What's so interesting about these private cities is that they're often, you know, drawing from that same heritage in some ways, but very self-consciously delinking from traditions of public accountability, public administration, ideas of popular sovereignty for the nation. Their protests against that whole history, right? They're, the private city says to govern an entire patch of territory is um, a fool's errand and we need to actually exit existing nation states and produce a totally different relationship to sovereignty. One which is not premised on like birthright or um, one sort of passport or national citizenship, but an opt-in model where you pay an entry fee and there, therefore you become a kind of actor inside of this new um, ur- ur- urban agglomeration. So the, the private city um, tradition, I would say, has like kind of a different lineage. I would, I would put its earliest, its earliest predecessors definitely in these kind of outposts of private corporation empire, corporate empire, but also company towns. I think that especially in the process of westward settlement in the United States and Canada, you'd get these places that were just um, settlements built by the investors in usually the local mine or the timber mill that would, you know, have their own kind of legal personality. They'd often have their own currency called scrip. People would have no rights to appeal to beyond what was granted to them by the paternalist, uh, you know, grand largesse of the boss. And people who are interested in private cities often look at that model and say like, yes, that's what it is. It should, you know, none of this airy fairy stuff about rights or obligations or citizenship. The only way that cities work is when we are customers and opt-in clients and the social contract is literally a set of terms and conditions that you sign on to when you enter. How does that connect to Paul Romer's idea of a charter city? Um, And when you've explained that, maybe you could Tell us how that links to Rishi Sunak's uh, education, sure. because I find that connection really fascinating. So Paul Romer is a Nobel Prize winning economist. And I think he's actually really critical for this story that I tell in my book. Because what I'm trying to describe in my book is, I think, a kind of a convergence of a kind of a minority group of pretty radical libertarians and anarcho-capitalists on the one hand. And then the kind of changing mood at a kind of a popular and mass level on another. And I'm interested in the moments where those two meet, when when people who are otherwise could be easily dismissed as like cranks and weirdos suddenly find themselves like sort of matching beats with the zeitgeist and, and having an opening where it's like, oh, my God, we can actually do this. Right. I mean, this is not for nothing why um, Quasi Quartang wrote a fairly positive review of the book. Right. Because he was like, this is kind of hopeful for him. Like these moments when like radicals and utopians and dreamers can kind of have their moment. I mean, he had his, as we know, and other people, in, as I describe in the book, kind of had theirs. And Paul Romer, 
comes along in the early 2000s. He's teaching at Stanford. He's already a very like entrepreneurial professor by professor's standards in the sense that he's started a kind of academic software company that he sells for quite a bit of money. Um, but he's also working at a university, Stanford, where there's a long history of, of like sort of applying academic knowledge to the needs of business. So Hewlett Packard is right next to Stanford campus. A lot of the kind of startup ecosystem of the early 2000s was like totally wrapped up with the Stanford campus, as uh, Malcolm Harris describes so brilliantly in his book, Palo Alto. Condoleezza Rice, interestingly, leaves the Bush administration to become um, either the dean or provost, I can't remember, of Stanford at exactly this time. So also that synergy between like American empire and kind of new forms of frontier innovation and investing is very much alive there. What he does, he stands up on stage in 2009, first at the Long Now Foundation, which is something started by the futurist Stuart Brand. Um, the term Long Now comes from Brian Eno. He contributed that idea, closely involved. And then later at the TED, the TED Talk, you know, in Oxford, actually, iconic kind of place at the moment. And he proposes something that at any other time in history before, I think after, would have seemed totally laughable and absurd. But at that precise moment, in the wake of the Iraq war, at the high point of kind of tech boosterism in Silicon Valley, kind of um, gullible fanboydom in the, in the journalistic world seemed normal, which is he said what countries should do to get ahead in the development world should to be, would be to cede part of their territory to oversight by a foreign government, which should be allowed to manage that space, police it, come up with new laws, invited investors, and so on. Which, if that sounds like voluntary self-colonization, that's exactly what it was, right? I mean, it was calling for countries to welcome back in colonial rulers, um, whether or not they have had, had them in the past. The example he uses is still blows my mind. Maybe it's just because I am Canadian personally. But the example he uses was that the United States should grant the kind of management of Guantanamo Bay to Canada. And then Canada could turn Guantanamo Bay, instead of being like an offshore site for torture and interrogation, could be uh, a new Hong Kong, is what he said. And this idea is like universally praised in the American media. Um, from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times to the Atlantic, he gets rave reviews for this idea. Hey, maybe this is what countries do have to do. Maybe they've been too doggedly gripping onto that idea of old-fashioned idea of sovereignty and self-determination. I mean, what are those really? What use are those in the dog-eat-dog world of 21st century global competition? So as it turns out, he gets a chance to try out his, his idea in Honduras, where there's a coup, um, a democratically elected leader is overthrown, and you have basically this really fertile combination of authoritarianism and kind of people with MBA business degrees who think that Romer's idea might be exactly what they're looking for. So they offer up basically the rewriting of the Honduran legal code to Romer who helps them create the possibility of what to this day are kind of the most far-reaching private zones that um, have been proposed in the 21st century. They were called, originally they were called REDS, R-E-Ds, after the um, an acronym of the Spanish term. But the idea was that uh, foreign 
companies or investors would be able to come in and not just rewrite the laws, have their own courts, have their own police forces, open their own um, airports and ports, but also would have uh, legal personality at the international level. So they would be able to enter into treaties and have representation, presumably at things like the World Trade Organization, I suppose, um, and other forms of international economic law. So Romer actually gets this pushed through the Honduran legislation and um, very interestingly ends up getting sidelined by a group of Silicon Valley investors who wanted to take things one step further. So if Romer wanted to sort of voluntarily recolonize part of Honduras, the Silicon Valley investors who included um, Patri Friedman, Milton Friedman's grandson, were like, no, what if it was just fully privatized? What if this was a private government, pure and simple, and we as the investors were able to go in and purchase the right to create our own territory and build indeed something like a small private city or whatever, they had large plans. Um, they went ahead with the plan, uh, large amounts of money were invested, but then at the end of 2022, there was an election in Honduras around which much was made of this, this practice of ceding part of Honduran sovereignty. And the new person who was elected vowed to kick out the libertarian investors and, and restore sort of Honduran sovereignty to the, to the zone. The, the afterlife of this, which is really worth mentioning because it says so much about the story, which is still ongoing, is that the libertarian, even anarcho-capitalist investors have suddenly now rediscovered the virtues of international law because they have filed uh, an arbitration court uh, case, a, a suit demanding $10 billion in damages through the Central American Free Trade Agreement and also through a bilateral investment treaty that they had somehow are able to have standing in between Kuwait and Honduras. As one of the people involved said, we libertarians hate international law, but it turns out it can be really helpful sometimes. Um, so why, that's only important to mention, even though I'm afraid that was a bit long-winded, is to, to show how these sort of projects of exit and escape and libertarian secession, which look like they're kind of opting out of the existing capitalist system are actually totally dependent on things happening at like the top level of supranational governance at the same time. And in fact, can only exist and feel a sense of security because they know that when push comes to shove, they can appeal to um, these larger uh, uh, trade agreements behind which stands the power of the American state. And the American state is backing up at the moment their claim inside of um, the Honduran uh, legal system, even in a time when supposedly the U.S. government has, you know, lost faith in globalism and has turned towards new projects of economic nationalism. So there's there's also a, a longer a lineage there of company towns in Central America into which this sort of taps in a painful way for Hondurans, where um, since the 19th century, Sort of freebooters from the U.S. have gone down and tried to start their own republics, start to become presidents, um, and so on. And so that is an even more recent history of um, of private government, which we should, I think, see as so recent that this idea that nations actually have sovereignty 
over territory is actually almost more like a short interlude in global history, right? I mean, it actually, the tw- not even the entire 20th century, and now as we enter the 21st century and all of these forms of undermining um, sovereignty and self-determination become ever harder to ignore, I think we start to sort of see presumptions of national autonomy as themselves a bit like naive and maybe even anachronistic. You mentioned a moment ago something that I think, I don't want to get too theoretical here, but like somehow I think is really important for understanding the dynamics or the way in which right libertarians think about this, which is exit. Hmm. Right. So you mentioned this, this is part of Albert O. Hirschman's tripartite exit voice loyalty typology. And I was wondering if you could explain very briefly what that is and also what its significance is in contemporary right-wing thinking. Sure. Yeah, it's an interesting... Um that has an interesting history, this idea of exit voice or loyalty. Hirschman, when he first proposed the idea, he was actually talking about it in relationship to uh, corporations and corporate governance, that people had the choice of either, you know, selling their shares, you know, to exit their relationship to a firm or exercising their kind of shareholder power by trying to pressure the board to make certain decisions or to simply, you know, remain with it and keep their mouth shut. Years after he wrote about it in terms of corporations, he revisited it in terms of states. So he wrote a really great and famous article about, about East Germany, saying that what he had first identified in terms of sort of consumer sovereignty, you could also see happening in nations that uh, if you were a a a citizen of the GDR, if East Germany in 1989, you had those three choices too. You could either, you know, try to leave or easily leave once the wall fell. You could try to exercise some kind of dissent or kind of um, some some version of um, uh, political alternative inside of uh, inside of the GDR, or you could simply keep your mouth shut and just go along go along with whatever happened. The voice option obviously implies a certain kind of a faith in democratic processes that like you wouldn't do it if you thought it was hopeless. So to exercise voice means to think that whatever system it is, no matter how broken it seems, it could somehow be recuperated, rehabilitated. And in a way, like we have no choice but to engage with whatever kind of, um, you know, brutally broken political system we happen to live under. This should probably be a pretty familiar concept for, you know, everyone listening to this podcast, right? I mean, I'm sure no one listening is entirely satisfied with the way that, you know, British democracy, American democracy, or any democracy is currently operating. But many of us feel like voice is the the only thing we have. Libertarians say, well, no, there's also exit. Why don't you just leave? You don't like it? Why don't you leave? The answer for most people is they don't have the means to do so. There's no place to go. The community that this libertarian uh, message speaks most uh, directly to is one that is wealthy enough to have those options. So one of the things that the kind of commercialization of sovereignty has done in the last 25 years is it has made it possible to quite literally buy a residence visa or buy a second passport, whether it's in Dominica or a uh, Antigua or indeed a New Zealand, or through golden passport schemes, Greece or Portugal. So the exit option 
is about rethinking politics into this kind of along the lines of consumerism that that we should think about politics as opt in we should vote with our feet rather than with our ballots and the ideal world is one in which the existing rather small menu of options for political affiliation would be you know greatly multiplied because as um, Peter Thiel said in, in an anecdote, I begin the book with, you know, we should have, you know, the more nations there are, the more freedom there is, the more options we have to kind of find an environment, whether it's taxation, social, political, that fits us the best. So the book has uh, different examples of that happening in real life. And I think, I still think, you know, after having now finished it some time ago, I think the most interesting, actually, example in the book is that one of South Africa. I think we, especially because Mandela and the Rainbow Nation and the end of apartheid in South Africa is kind of one of the few seemingly unalloyed feel-good stories we have about the recent past, you know, in popular culture and popular media, I think it's, you know, it's something that, you know, you can see Mandela's like smiling face on the balcony and just like, well, you know, at least there was that. Um, and so there, there's like a strong kind of a political um, payload to the things having turned out in South Africa the way that they did. What I show in the chapter of my book about that is that it wasn't the only way that things could have gone. Uh, I mean, of course, you go a few years later and you realize all the demands for Social democracy in South Africa were crushed anyway by kind of the terms and conditions of, uh, of becoming part of the global capitalist economy. But what I show in the book is that actually the most popular idea for South African elites, like five years before Mandela on the balcony, was to shatter South Africa's territory into innumerable small cantons, um, which would each be different. Like this one would be black nationalist. This one would be white nationalist. This one would have a 5% tax rate. This one would have a full welfare state. And that people should be able to, to, to be able to free to choose between their affiliations. Of course, the whole thing was designed to reproduce the status quo ante and allow those people of means to escape into kind of, you know, fortresses within which they could protect their wealth. And the th whole thing was also based on the existing model of Bantu stands, which South Africa had developed until that point, which provided the fiction of self-determination and autonomy for black populations, while actually just creating sort of surplus pools of labor out of which the white majority population could draw and expel people at will. So it's a time of, you know, extreme political geographic flux, which kind of contains even in about 10 years, like this whole range of options about like, how do you solve this problem? And the problem is inequality. In this case, inequality very clearly organized around racial lines and an elite which has no interest in letting go of their privileges and their wealth. Interestingly, the way that the wealthy white Af Afrikaners and the wealthy white um, English-speaking class saw it is they wanted to get to America. What they wanted was something like America, where also we have a you know, highly stratified society along lines of race, and yet 
the world community doesn't seem to be that offended by the existence of racial inequalities in the U.S. It seems to be accepted as the way it is. That, so a lot of the, the, the story in my book is like, how do you naturalize and um, make normal um, the existence of like racially marked divisions of um, haves and have nots? And the zone in the more expanded versions of the, of the imaginary is a way that you can dispel the kind of baggage of the nation and all of the automatic claims for membership that it entails and get to something more that is um, more can crack up the world along kind of economically stratified lines. I want to get to the uh, the sort of construction of new cities, the kind of private cities uh, in a section. This happened. But first of all, I want to talk about Dubai, mm. which strikes me as a sort of an interesting stepping stone in terms of what Mike Davis calls its kind of legal bubble domes. Yep. I was wondering if you could tell us what those bubble domes are and what kind of innovation they produce for capitalism as Dubai is trying to sort of wrestle its way to the front of a pack of competing city-states, of which you've already mentioned too, Singapore and Hong Kong, which are ripe for innovation. Yeah, I mean, Dubai is really the homeland of the zone. Like, I think if you need to have the kind of world capital of zones, you'd almost appoint it to that status for two reasons. One is what it does on its own territory, which is a very small territory, don't forget. But in that territory, they completely fragmented up the land, small landmass into kind of different jurisdictional um, customized entities. So in this area, you can, um, let's say, access the internet freely. In this, this area, you can commodify land and sell it to foreigners. In this area, you can conduct financial transactions in the currency of your choice and you know, appeal your cases to the British Privy Council or whatever. And all it, it completely customized this kind of patchwork of its own territory according to the desires of potential investors. So, you know, what does, you know, an investor in this region want? We got it. Like, we'll give it to you. It was given a real boost by the fact that the, the, the American military was stationing itself there during the Gulf Wars, both the early ones and the later ones. So a lot of the demand was produced there. But after that, it has you know, been able to offer itself as just a welcome platform for real estate investment, um, tourism, in ex- sort of extraordinary ways. Obviously, the logistical um, platform as a site for air travel, a hub that, from which you can go anywhere in the world. The creation of low-cost manufacturing in the so-called Jebel Ali um, export processing zone which was being explicitly used by the conservatives as like a template for the free ports, amazingly. Um, in their That's the British conservatives, not the Dubai conservatives. The, the, the British the conservatives, yeah. They said, we want to you know, out-compete Jebel Ali. And even free port consultants were like, are you kidding? Like, do you know what the wages are there? Do you know what kind of um, vacuum of labor law exists? You, can't, you simply can't replicate that in like Teesside or whatever. Um, so Dubai is interesting because of the way they were managed to customize themselves to global demand through legal um, means. But now also in the last 20 years, the way that they've globalized that themselves. So Dubai has become through its state-owned logistics wing DP world, you know, one of the premier port owner and operators globally. So, you know, from Vancouver to, um, to East Africa, they uh, to Malaysia, they own and manage 
uh, ports and they set them up on the model of special economic zones, a quasi-extraterritorial with um, different relationships to the, the host state, often stretched out over long durations of time, usually 99-year leases, same as the British had in Hong Kong. And so they actually modeled now a way of, of kind of using zoning technologies as a means of, um, you know, growing a kind of a very important base of not just economic power, but also military power. And the Belt and Road Initiative, which you mentioned a while back, is, you know, very much modeled on the success of both Dubai and Singapore in buying up and managing port infrastructure globally. The London Gateway is another local example for you of DP World's reach. Um, interestingly, now following up the following behind Dubai and Singapore and China is now India which I wanted to make sure to mention because this has been something that's happening now more recently. Adani is the big port operator in India, but it's now starting to globalize. And India's relationship to the Middle East and to Europe is changing kind of as a result of that. So there's something that was announced in the last few months called the um, India-Europe-Middle East Corridor which is a chain of what will be Adani-operated ports that runs from Mumbai to Piraeus in Greece, which is currently operated by the Chinese uh, company. But it's relevant and interesting because one of the places it runs through, not just Saudi Arabia, but through Haifa. And the port of Haifa is now owned and operated by Adani, which is material to the present geopolitical moment because one of the big surprises in the last month and a half or so is how loyal Modi's government has been to Israel in the conflict when traditionally India was at least rhetorically supportive of the Palestinian cause. Suddenly it seems to have taken, you know, a, a very strong and concerted stance on the side of Israel. And when one looks at it kind of through the cold lens of infrastructure politics and you look at how important it would be for India to have their own version of the Belt and Road Initiative and their own competitor to Dubai that now isn't just about the massive domestic Indian market, but about actually going global, that it's hard not to see a kind of, you know, mutual complementarity between Modi becoming more friendly with Israel and Yahoo's government and Adani sort of building this chain of zones that goes directly through the Eastern Mediterranean by way of Haifa. So I think that's you know, one of the other ways that kind of putting on the zone glasses can help us um, make sense of some things that can be superficially surprising. God, I really need to watch this film so I understand what the difference <laughs> means. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> I wanted to get on that to, to, to Neo, which is in some ways um, the the most fantastical of the objects. And I, I think that's quite an like, important aspect of it in that it seems like it will never be built. It mm. seems like a sort of a, a dream. It seems like this thing that is impossible. Mm -hmm. Of course, its supporters would say to me, yes, that's exactly why we have to make something because it has this sort of fantastical quality out of sort of sense of capitalism lurching into a new era where it can um, bury an enormous amount of capital into an infrastructural project of constructing an entire massive city. The success rate for these things in Saudi Arabia is not great. Right. I think there were six previous cities planned and so far only the King Abdullah economic zone exists and it looks, to be fair, dreadful. Like I wouldn't live there. It looks like it has about... 7,000 residents, which for a city which has space for 
several hundred thousand is not a, a good number. Mm-hmm. Also, in the in the space where the line, which is this very long, people are not aware of it, uh, 150 kilometer long mm-hmm. city, which yeah, is planned, or even longer, yeah, or even longer, yeah. yeah. Um, I have loads of questions about this project, mm-hmm. but maybe you could give us a sense of how it fits inside what is called Vision 2030. Or also just answer my, my first question here, which is, are lines as bad a design for cities as they seem? <laughs> well, I mean, there is a long history of the linear city as being, you know, an alternative to the kind of circular kind of radial city. So I don't think that, you know, building things along a line of infrastructure is like a stigmatized idea in itself, like in urbanist circles. I think that the the crazy, let's see, so let's where to begin with the craziness of Neom. I mean, first of all, it's it's very relevant because when Mohammed bin Salman first announced it as part of this Vision 2030 project, he said that it would be the first city that would be floated on the stock exchange. So he was proposing it as like a pure example of a private city. It would exist outside of the laws of Saudi Arabia, meaning kind of, you know, like whatever sumptuary and religious and vice related laws wouldn't apply, um, you know, which would you know, theoretically make it more attractive to foreign residents. But beyond that, you know, it is a kind of a reach for the stars in the sense that it seeks to combine sort of all of the most cutting edge uh, features of present day capitalism. So it wants to be both a kind of a showcase of the highest end kind of luxury shopping, let's say, but also kind of adventure tourism. Um, there's a ski hill involved, but also to be kind of bolted on to this is where it gets more literally, you know, actually interesting, sort of high-end renewable green technologies. So the NEOM development is not just a sort of a residential space or a kind of leisure space, but it's also green hydrogen um, uh, research and development. It's massive solar arrays. It's connected to the desalination plant in that region. It's connected to a floating port that will become like an alternative hub for logistics in the area. And more than anything, the reason why I think people are talking about it is not just the numbers involved, but because especially in this kind of post-inflationary environment, um, Saudi Arabia, with its massive public investment fund, is one of the few places that one can go to for kind of investment capital, right? It's not for nothing that someone like Elon Musk has to go to (laughs) Riyadh or Dubai anytime he's short on cash for something that's happening with his investors into Twitter or X. So the reason why I think it's fascinating, and maybe I'll just describe it very quickly for people who haven't read much about it. The line, what it is, is like this, I think 200 kilometer plus long linear city that is um, two continuous skyscrapers facing each other with a relatively small distance of a kind of a canyon between the two, which is the entire living space really of neon is this canyon between the two skyscrapers. The outside of the skyscrapers is a reflective surface, which is supposed to both repel you know, sunlight, but also there's their photovoltaic cells, I guess, for producing solar energy. And between the the two continuous continuous skyscrapers, you have, you know, uh, light rail, 
But you also have some more adventurous things, like supposedly you have a way to like swim, commute. Um, but in, you also have all the services arrayed in such a way that you can live within, you know, the feared like 15 minute city is supposed to be made a reality inside of this zone as well. So it seems like um, on the one hand, just a flight of fancy, but on the other hand, they have so much money that they have managed to hire all of the top architecture firms in the world with very few exceptions. Um, only a couple, including Norman Foster, bowed out after the fact that Bedouins who lived in the area were cleared and in some cases killed by Saudi security forces to clear the land for this undertaking. But the person who's most closely identified with it is also most interesting for my and our purposes here, who's a, a man named Patrick Schumacher. He's a German in his 50s and is now the principal for Zaha Hadid Architects. So I still think this is like a public relations coup because all the time you read about Zaha Hadid Architects building this and that, I don't know how many people realize she's dead and she's not involved anymore. <laughs> you know, like it's not her, it's Patrick Schumacher. It should be called Patrick Schumacher Architects, which you know, doesn't have the, glam, the glitz that Zaha Hadid does. But why he's relevant to this story is he is an avowed anarcho-capitalist and believes entirely in the need to unplug urbanism from democratic decision-making. And for that reason, not surprisingly, has had all of his projects in China and Hong Kong and the Gulf. They have the money, they have the iron fist to make things happen, and they are most interested in catering to you know an elite uh, stratum of society. So he's the one who's built this sort of crystalline, incredible skyscraper resort on the on one of the mountains nearby Neom, which will supposedly host like a, some winter games before too long. Um, and he's the one who has been most vocal about what he sees both here and in Honduras, where he's the primary designer for the Prospera um, Special Economic Zone I mentioned a minute ago, to see these as kind of built instantiations of a kind of a new post-democratic order. So for him, it's not just another contract. These are supposed to be kind of like concrete utopias of what it could look like if we unplugged human, you know, settlement from these, you know, dusty and boring 20th century ideas of equality and redistributive justice and welfare. That so it Neom is, you know, like a trophy of that, of that, what he hopes to see as a kind of a new coming reality. And that those those forms of inequality are not just things that are stratified inside the cities, but actually in the construction of the cities themselves. So Absolutely. labor flows of incredibly unequal indentured servitude, slavery in many cases, um, which you mentioned before in, in Dubai. Hmm. And how do those things allow for these kinds of mega projects to become feasible? Mm -hmm. Well, so that's where I think that it's really helpful to think about the writings and the, the speculations of a lot of the people that I talk about in my book as like symptoms in the pure sense. So often in the sense that they tell us something of what is being repressed, because the vision, for example, of Dubai as a place that could be emulated in the United States or in the UK, it, or even Singapore being replicated in the UK 
whether that's from the more expansionist social democratic version or the more sort of libertarian, low regulation, low tax version, it just manages to repress the fact that in both of these cases, like three quarters of the residents are not citizens, are receiving none of the benefits of this new form of urbanism or political economy and can be sort of fired and deported at any moment and often are. Um, You mentioned the fact that many people in the Gulf are effectively slaves. Well, that's exactly right. You know, a lot of people have their wages simply not paid um, and they're held in a kind of indentured status vis-a-vis the people who help them to get there from what is usually South Asia or Southeast Asia. So if you fetishize this as kind of the future, then either you're incredibly stupid and you have failed to notice that this is all being done by like an effectively indentured, disenfranchised secondary class, or you do know it more likely and you don't care. (laughs) And that for you is simply part of the model that, you know, what one gets away from when you discard citizenship is the ability to make claims as equals. And if you discard that and you say, well, people are disposable, you know, be suburban effectively. And the moment they complain, then, well, whatever, we'll bring in some new, some new domestics from Indonesia or Malaysia or wherever, then, um, then, then I think you have arrived at the kind of neo-feudal reality that many of them, you know, more and less openly fetishize the, the, there's almost something bracingly, um, refreshing about people who like Schumacher, who are open about that. It's like, well, yeah, there's, of course, there's a laboring class. Will they be part of the city? Well, only insofar as we need them. Um, the ones, people who are almost more annoying to me are the ones who pretend that that's not part of it, who, who act as if, you know, everyone will be involved. Everyone will be in, you know, we'll be able to all live in these lovely condos and in Honduras as, as equals. It's like, under, under what set of conditions of social reproduction does that happen? Like, you don't have to be like a <laughs> you know value theorist to realize that that's there's something missing in that equation. So I think that you know for me the point of looking at these far out examples that are often sort of paper fantasies is they sort of give us a broader spectrum of understanding of the kind of futures that we could be on guard against. And that some people are like consciously planning for, you know, I think that if the limits of your of your anxieties as a kind of a political actor only go as far as the party that I don't like might get elected, which is a really, I think, the sort of centrist reality is in the U.S. anyway. It's like that's as bad as it gets. Like the bad guys who I don't like are going to be in power instead of my good guys. Then I think you kind of miss these extremes which as I'm trying to make clear in here and in the book are already becoming realities through these sort of piecemeal termite-like operations of the erosion of oversight and accountability. Then I think that, you know, I think that's, that's just an act of like, hopefully like political enlightenment that will make us change our own strategies beyond simply the boundaries of partisan politics. I'd be surprised if there weren't a large group of people for whom denying the obvious reality of um, indentured servitude in Mm. the Gulf states were not actually really something they do quite effortlessly. And I'm thinking particularly of something that harks back to something we talked about a moment ago, which is zero interest um, policies. What I refer to to sometimes as ZERP culture, zero interest policy regime culture, 
Um, and also perhaps what you refer to much at the beginning of our conversation, which is about the way in which people who are outsiders suddenly get in contact with the zeitgeist. And to kind of bring all those things together, I'm thinking about crypto capital and like the influence of cryptocurrencies as a particular kind of way of gathering a lot of value together. Mm -hmm. That has now diminished substantially. And yet one of the crowning achievements of that in theoretical terms was Balaji Srinasian's uh, notion of the network state. And I wonder how you see the network state fitting into this. Perhaps you could explain, first of all, what it is. And then like, how do you see that fitting into this, this unraveling story here. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, insofar as someone like Paul Romer was made possible by the occupation of Iraq, <laughs> in the sense like the remixing of sovereignty, the recuperation of empire as like a productive political form was happening by virtue of American foreign policy and British foreign policy alongside them. Um, at, at the same time, you also had these new fantasies of exit becoming a bit more realistic or plausible because of the kind of flood of liquidity that entered the market following the global economic crisis and the, the attempt to kind of juice the economies in the global north to um, get back to growth and profitability. One of the morbid symptoms of which was, as you say, like the kind of crypto bubble. So people who were kind of native to that world were diluted in a very specific way that, you know, had, a, you know, a, a, a finger hold in reality, which is that we dreamed up a new kind of money and it didn't exist. And now it does. You know, we made something out of nothing. We fantasized about a basic aspect of the state that the state is supposed to have a monopoly on and it worked right so it's it's you know it's the, if you think about one of the things states have a monopoly on is like the legitimate use of force if you were able to create a breakaway republic in which your militias were now the recognized security forces you might be like holy shit we just did it like we are our own state well, another thing that states are supposed to have a monopoly on is like the printing and issuing of currency. And if you invent Bitcoin or get on early on the bandwagon and you can, if you have the right software in your computer, you know, exchange the tokens you have for um, American dollars, then you seem to have pulled off that trick too. The conclusion that some people drew was that if they had done it with currency, then why not do it with the country? This guy you mentioned, Balaji, Srinivasan is, I think, in some ways, a very smart man. Like, I think, I think he is, he is a smart man in the sense that he was, and I say that with a moment of hesitation because some people think the exact opposite of him, but I think there's some skill to be a lightning rod and to sort of act as someone who can sort of conduct or draw to themselves a whole series of things which are slightly disparate but he manages to make them into a single thing. So he manages to make everything that I just described in terms of the rise of special economic zones, the kind of perforation of legal sovereignty, um, the, the quasi extraterritorial status of tax havens and financial centers. He writes about all that stuff too. And he just thinks it's all great. And he thinks it's all, you know, accumulating towards what he hopes will come next, which is the creation of new private uh, polities, 
the problem that he faces is the same one that many would be kind of countrypreneurs have faced in the past, which is like, where are you going to do this thing? And there's a whole books written, a wonderful book by Raymond Crabe called Inventure Capitalism, which is much more about these attempts to create like micro estates, most of them in the Caribbean, some in the South Pacific, sometimes by like just piling up dirt on a coral reef and being like, okay, here we are. This is a new state. Um, so Balaji is very well aware of that and very scornful, rightfully, of those kind of efforts. But he thinks he has another way of come, going at the problem, which is where I think he shows his, his, his genius in a way. But she's like, look, what are people actually interacting with on a daily basis? Like, do people think about their own country that much? I mean, beyond voting or like saying the Pledge of Allegiance, if you're a child like my son has to in his school, um, how often do you think about your status as like a member of a nation state? Like, by contrast, you know, how often do you interact with social media platform? Facebook is the example he uses 10 years ago, 12 years ago. People go on that dozens of times a day, sometimes hundreds of times a day. And I, I still like this example he gives, which is like, you know, what would happen if you're walking down the street in New York and every apartment where someone was on Facebook, a little blue flag just appeared out of the window and started fluttering in the wind, you know, like at the high point of Facebook usage. I mean, that must, that would have been pretty startling. It'd be like, this is a takeover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this, mm-hmm. this private entity has just captured the eyeballs and the imaginations of people who were otherwise would be considered Americans. Um, so his argument or his, his gambit was to say, what if we could take that kind of platform loyalty and use that to create a more politicized sense of affiliation or identity, which would begin in the cloud, as he puts it, begin online, but then eventually come down to earth somewhere. So it's kind of like, what if a fandom could be a country you know what if like swifties or like bts army or whatever would then become like the country of taylor swift which is honestly not so hard to imagine at the moment um bts might fans might be slightly more committed but um. yeah i mean they've already got korea so i don't know exactly but uh but the he, he has a whole book written about this you know endless ink spilled over it in the kind of the libertarian blogosphere, you know, hundreds of hours of YouTube videos talking about it. But it never really quite lands for just really obvious reasons, which is like, what part of the world are we supposed to be talking about here? You know, literally, I mean, I spoke to someone who is a, who's a a very smart sort of advocate in this zone world. And he wanted to kind of have the debate with me. He's like, well, wouldn't you want to just have like one area that was like your more socialist politics and another one that was my more libertarian politics? And we just see which one works out better. And I was like, which areas are we talking about here? Like, I can only follow kind of dorm room philosophy, um, you know, thought experiments so far before I need to ask about where we're actually referring to. And every time that these things actually get instantiated, like materialized, put onto the earth, they produce massive backlash. I mean, the Honduran case is perfect. You had very low levels of trust in government there. It's not like people thought that their wonderful, robust democracy had just been undermined. But still, it's galling when people show up and say, trumpet their own, like, ability to buy your country from you on the same place that, you know, William Walker did that uh, 150 years earlier. Um, as an American freebooter. So 
for me, it was a very telling moment in, in, in Balaji's discussion of this when he used one example as basically one of his, his real life um, success stories, which is the state of Israel. He said, you know, he said that, you know, Theodor Herzl produced the idea of Zionism as a kind of cloud country sort of, you know, circulated through printed materials before there was an actual patch of territory. And then, then you know, you had you know, what he calls like a reverse diaspora in a way where people, instead of being expelled from somewhere, all gather in one particular place, uh, which obviously they, you know, felt like they had a historical claim on. And and then and now he praises them for having a startup society, right? Startup Nation is a famous book about Israeli sort of tech culture. But then he concedes that it needs to be highly militarized. You need to build a border security fence, a wall around the place because of the people you displaced when you set up your startup nation. So in that sense, for all of the futurism and all of the, you know, drooling kind of um, fixation on the latest bit of technological software development or whatever, it just comes back to these really boring stories about like land grabs, indigenous sovereignty, expropriation. You know, it's just an enclosure story, I think, in the end. And building legitimacy for a new form of politics is never going to be able to just do an end run around that unless you want to be very frank about the fact that you're just going to have bigger guns. And maybe that's where it does end up is like there, this is the cloud country will exist in so far as it's armed to the teeth and willing to expel existing residents. Um, and then, um, okay. But then we're in the dystopia that, you know, they claimed we weren't constructing, you know, and we are back in Neil Stevenson territory. Um, uh, we're in we're in Octavia Butler territory. It strikes me that a lot of this is downstream of a misunderstanding of the role of money and understanding mm. money as a, as a direct expression of power and not understanding it as a way of mediating social relations. And therefore, a sort of a sense that the money itself is powerful rather than the guns, ultimately, at the end of the day. One of my favorite tweets, which I'm just going to try and summarize and see if it lands on, maybe it'll go and maybe it won't, um, is, uh, it's an imaginary quote from a uh, crypto proponent. The US dollar is backed up by nothing. And then the tweet is um, the nothing. And then it's a link to a video. And the video shows three attack helicopters offshore, um, maybe two miles offshore, simultaneously obliterating a target onshore, just completely destroying it. Mm-hmm. And of course, what the tweet is trying to express mm-hmm. is that yes, it seems like the US dollar is backed up by by a sort of fantasy of social yeah. agreement and trust. Time, uh, but actually, of course, military power is uh, at least as much a significant substratum of, of that form of power itself. Yeah, I mean, Henry Farrell and Abe Newman just wrote this book called Underground Empire, and I did a review of it. And I mentioned this line I liked because they got themselves from Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. Who in that book remarks that Louis the Fourteenth had supposedly engraved on his cannons the last argument of kings, right? So that there is this kind of the threat of force does backstop all of that. But I think that you could even have something between the kind of sidewinder missile and the Bitcoin, which is the central bank. I mean, I think that the role of central banks as the kind of managers of money is the kind of anguished reality against which these um, new money people kind of are constantly throwing themselves but are never really able to break out of like they are they remain in the orbit of the final sort of 
lender of last resort being uh, and the dealer of last resort being fed in this in this case. And that's really the the thing that they've never really been able to think their way out of. One of the the metaphors I use somewhere in the book is is the egret, you know, how like an an egret will like sit on the back of a rhinoceros or something and like pick at it. It's you know, eat the bugs off its back and in exchange, you know, the rhinoceros will, you know, let it do that. And there's kind of a symbiotic relationship. But the, you know, the egret wouldn't have anything to eat if it didn't have the rhinoceros to sit on the back of. I think that that's the relationship that a lot of these like libertarian microstates, whether it's Monaco's relationship to France or um, these Honduran Zede's relationship to the United States, they they exist on the on the sort of a fantasy of self determination or autonomy, but in fact they are you know only existing at the kind of indulgence of a larger power behind them. And sometimes people are quite are quite frank about that. So Titus Gable is one of the most important entrepreneurs of the private city these days. And he is open about that. He's like, yeah, no, we'll, we will just, we'll have to find a guarantor of security behind us. And that, I think, you know, that's one of the, the sort of surprise endings or kind of twists in my book, I think, is that after playing out all of the fantasies of the libertarian exiteers, I kind of, you know, show the reader that in fact, these zones for the most part are not real sites of like escape or exit or real self-making or like a genuine form of self-determination or kind of, they're not really neo entities in any way, but they're in the, for the most part, just numerically in the world used as kind of tools of accumulation by authoritarian states. So where are most of these zones in the world, whether in the People's Republic of China, is China being um, slowly democratized or having its freedom uh, you know, transformed internally by the proliferation of special economic zones? It doesn't really look like it. Actually, it seems like they have them well in harness. Um, Saudi Arabia too. Um, if you are a kind of libertarian who's saying let's build a private city in the Saudi desert and we'll be able to bring a new understanding of freedom to the Gulf, then you're just like a useful idiot for MBS. Um, so I think that one should at least walk away from it all with like a pretty healthy dose of cynicism about what this whole project is actually about. And those people who advocate it and are still are honest about that are probably the best among them. Perhaps your previous answer is um, precluded this, and it's an unnecessary question. But there is a notion of patchwork um, in, from Curtis Yarvin's work, which is the idea of a sort of multiplication of city-states. The imaginary he very much leans on is um, Genoese period of capitalism, so uh, early city-state formations around the, the Mediterranean, and then generalizing that to the whole of the world. You've possibly already refuted this as a possible path, but quiz podium, mm -hmm. if you were to design a patch... If you were to design an area of the world, how would you do so? Mm. Perhaps not a full master plan, but perhaps how would you go about constructing the kinds of social relations that could then themselves design a master plan? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the key there would be to not perceive of it as existing in isolation. Um, I think that Part of the ideology that I hope to kind of undermine or that I think is pretty per pervasive is this like 
this fiction of self-reliance or this fiction of autonomy, right? Like the global citadels of financial capitalism, like London or New York sort of act as if they exist um, and they are the ones who are producing value and they don't need their hinterlands. So it seems to me that like there's a way to design these zones in such a way that acknowledges their enchainment and their kind of mutual reliance along longer circuits of exchange and even extraction and movement of ideas and money and wealth that span borders and continents and oceans in a way that could be actually really good. So I am a great admirer of this idea that my friend Thea Ria Francos and others has talked about a lot, which is like supply chain justice as a kind of alternative political imagination for the left these days. I think that the idea of the nation as like a community of fate that we're like bound to and we have no alternative but to defend it because that's the only grounds of politics that have ever worked um, needs to be challenged, right? I mean, not, we won't necessarily win in that challenge, but the alternatives to that are the old fashioned one of internationalism, a kind of like class based politics that spans borders, which I obviously have no problem with. I think it has dim prospects at the moment for different reasons. But then you can think of this kind of zone based internationalism, I think, which is, you know, you can think of it in two different ways. Do you look for places that are similar or dissimilar to your own place? Like, do you look for the places that provide certain raw materials that make life in where I live, Cambridge, Massachusetts, possible, and then try to form more meaningful, direct relationships, less mediated political contacts with those places? Or do you look for places that are similar to you globally that you can then produce a kind of counter network against the dominant politics in your own country, which is probably pretty bad, um, you know, that could be a kind of commonwealth of, I don't know, you know, enlightened, less commodified um, places along the lines of sort of cooperative models of Mondragon and so on, where the hope is that you model things small and then scale them up. So I think I don't have a blueprint per se, but I think that it opens up productive, you know, trajectories for rethinking political geography, which is, you know, we need to, if we think in terms of smaller scales, then we have the possibility of finding unlikely accomplices or unlikely kind of comrades beyond our own immediate uh, community. There was actually a really interesting um, interview with Amjad um, Iraqi, the Palestinian Israeli uh, researcher about this that I was listening to the other day. And he was, he was talking about something similar in terms of a way out of the impasse in Israel-Palestine, which he thought hasn't been discussed enough, which is just very deep decentralization, even though it's such a small place, that there's no real reason why like states, ethno-states, or even you know, two state with single states with multi-nations should be the only horizon of politics, that cities have their own identities, that there could be a kind of productive crack up as opposed to the unproductive crack up that I describe so much in my book. So I guess that's maybe as much as I could say on the topic at the moment. 
I should say that people should go and read Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy from Alan Lane by Quince Verdian. Thank you very much. Thank you. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.